This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. I'm Amy Mollett, and in this second episode, we're looking at the legacy of feminist scholarship and activism, and where it's heading to next. We speak to senior archivist at the Wellcome Library, Leslie Hall, about her research into the life of 20th century reproductive rights campaigner, Stella Brown, and how we can still see her influence in today's feminist movements. She was involved in issues around reproductive rights when a lot of people within the suffrage movement thought these were just kind of, let's not go there, you know, let's not kind of talk about sexy things. Lecturer in film and television studies, Dr Melanie Williams, discusses how film showcases the evolving representation of women in society over the last century. The rise of the cinema goes in parallel with the kind of the new woman of the late 19th century and the first feminist movement as well. So you can draw interesting parallels between the, the kind of growth of the cinema and the growth of the women's movement. Finally, we'll hear from LSE academic Professor Mary Evans on which books have inspired her passion for studying gender, literature and social theory. I think that capacity for being happy in your own space, content with solitude, is a really important part of the ways in which we forget that life can be solitary as well as collective. This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. Welcome to our second episode. If you missed our first episode on language and culture, you can find it on the blog at lsereviewofbooks.com, along with daily reviews of academic books across the social sciences. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just email lsereviewofbooks at lse.ac.uk or tweet us at lsereviewbooks. First up, Leslie Hall, Senior Archivist at the Wellcome Library, introduces her recent book, The Life and Times of Stella Brown, Feminist and Free Spirit. Leslie starts off by telling us a bit about the book and who Stella was. Stella Brown was an enormously interesting early 20th century feminist who was involved in a whole range of the kind of the classic feminist campaigns of the period. She was a suffragette. In the First World War, she became involved with pacifism, um, was involved in the no conscription movement. She was involved in issues around reproductive rights when a lot of people within the suffrage movement thought these were just kind of, let's not go there, you know, let's not kind of talk about sexy things. But she got, she was involved in the birth control movement from before the First World War. And increasingly, she was arguing that people who were in the birth control movement needed actually to think about legalising abortion, which at that time was, of course, illegal, and a lot of it was backstreet and very dangerous. So she was involved in that, as seen as very edgy. A lot of people in the birth control movement were like, Stella, shut up, shut up. Birth control is problematic enough. Um, She was a sexual radical. She was into free love. But she still remained a very left-wing socialist. She was involved in the Chelsea Labour Party. She was in the Fabian Society. So she's this very radical figure. And in all the places she's in, she's doing something which the other people there wish she would shut up about. What was it about Stella for you? Why Stella? Why did you want to write this book on her? I kept coming across her in various places, in archives, in sort of brief mentions in biographies of other people. And I thought, there is a story there, but it all needs pulling together. And then a lot of archives became available, like the Havelock Ellis papers were put in the British Library Department of Manuscripts, and they had his correspondence with Stella from... 
1913 to just before his death. The Sanger papers were catalogued and there was a group of correspondents there. And just various other collections became available to the researcher. And once you find one thing, it leads you on to another. So it was this kind of... A bit like a de- bit like a jigsaw, a bit like a detective story, you know. It was it was like that, and I I just thought, you know, it's, I'd I'd really like to pursue this and see whether I can find enough to write a proper biography. What was the process of using archive material like? Were there any moments when you were jumping for joy or sort of frustrated? There are so many times in the archives where you feel, why is this place not full of people punching the air and saying, yes, because you come across something and it just kind of, it's a transfixing moment. And I had that moment in the National Archives when I was reading Stella's written evidence to the Government Interdepartmental Committee on Induced Abortion in 1937, where she wrote, she sent in a written formula of evidence that people did. They sent in written accounts and then they were interviewed by the committee. And she sent in this account and she cites various instances of women known to her who have been, you know, productive workers in the world um, and have had abortions. They have not died. It has not seriously impacted their health. They have gone on to have good lives. And number two, you think, I was reading it. Of course, it's all anonymised, but the way she put it, I thought... Oh my God, that is her. And because it was the way she's not married, she's had an active sexual and intellectual life, and she had had three abortions. And of course, in her oral testimony to the committee, she said, and this is quite well known because it's been cited by other people, by Sheila and by Barbara Books in her, her book on the abortion movement. In her oral testimony, she said, if abortion were necessarily lethal, I would not be sitting here before you myself. This is an unmarried woman of 57 talking to a government committee, and that is that was kind of a wonderful moment, the fact that seeing that bit where she do, does this case, sort of anonymised case history and thinking, that's her, and it kind of pinned down something about her and about her life, it can crystallise things bringing us up to the the present day are there any groups or individuals out there today that you see as the political offspring of Stella if you like or the sort of philosophical children of Stella I think there are a number of strands where you can say that you know we still are seeing the kind of things that Stella was interested in she was interested I mean, obviously, abortion rights is is the obvious successor, which was um, formed by the amalgamation of the Abortion Law Reform Association, which she was uh, instrumental in setting up, and the National Abortion Campaign. So that is very clearly her work still going on into the future. But I think there are a number of kind of philosophical trends around feminism at the moment, about thinking about women and sexuality and what it means, and that women's experience is diverse, that women aren't kind of... You can't say all women are the same, that women have different desires, both different from one another, and that this may well vary over a woman's lifespan. I think she'd be very interested in some of the research that's recently done on sexual fluidity in women and the idea that their desires, you know, they they don't necessarily define in particular ways, but it's very much about circumstance and individuals. If Stella were here today, how would she be contributing to the debates about gay rights and gay marriage? Where do you envisage her? 
Well, it should very much be about everybody is entitled to live their life the way they want. That she would be very much about encouraging diversity. I'm not quite sure where she'd be on gay marriage because, of course, she was coming very much from a period when marriage was being constructed as, well, for obvious reason, as this oppressive patriarchal institution. And whether she would think that LGBT people should be like agitating for actual marriage or whether we should actually be rethinking the whole way in which the state recognises relationships, I think is a very intriguing question. One I don't actually have the answer answer on. And she might say, well, as things are in society at the moment, yes, they should be allowed to marry, just in the way that when she was talking about divorce law reform in the 1930s, she was saying, well, you know, we think marriage, some of us think marriage has pretty well had it, but we also see that the existing system of marriage and being able to free oneself from a bad marriage is totally terrible. So, you know, we do need these kind of interme- almost intermediate reforms to, to Im- ameliorate the situation while also thinking about some bigger picture of, of more radical change. Leslie Hall, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really interesting chat. Thank you. That was fascinating. That was Leslie Hall on early feminist Stella Brown. Now we turn to the world of film. Lecturer in film and television studies at the University of East Anglia, Dr Melanie Williams speaks about her book, British Women's Cinema. Melanie joined Cheryl Brumley at the British Film Institute on London's South Bank to talk about the book and how gender and film studies make natural companions. Melanie, thanks for joining us here at the BFI for the LSE Review of Books podcast. The book you most recently edited takes a closer look at female representation from the genesis of film to modern-day pictures in Britain. I wanted to hear more about you and your co-editor Melanie Bell's motivation behind this book and what you both hope to achieve by focusing exclusively on women in film. Our aim with the book was to elaborate on some of the previous work that had been undertaken around thinking about women in British cinema and gender more generally in British cinema Um, and to build on this idea that when we were looking at the films that had been very popular at the British box office especially the British films it was notable that most of them could be classified as women's films and yet there was very little scholarship thinking about that particular generic framework in relation to British cinema so often when films of that kind were discussed they were siphoned off into other generic categories so Brief Encounter would be talked about as a David Lean film as a a kind of classic of uh, 40s British cinema as a Noel Coward adaptation, um, whereas, of course, its, its core subject matter is intensely um, emotive. It has a woman who has to choose between a husband and lover. So a lot of the tropes of uh, women's cinema can be traced into a film like Brief Encounter. When you put together all those films which are put into other categories, you start to get a really significant picture of British cinema actually making a lot of films that 
could be classified as women's pictures or, to use the more modern term, chick flicks. Um, and yet they weren't really being talked about in that way. So we wanted to trace some of the patterns of British film production either aimed at women or that had a particular appeal to female audiences or set out to have an appeal. And to put those together and then see what we came up with. And so how do films reflect that shift in the feminist movement over the decades? The rise of the cinema goes in parallel with with the kind of the new woman of the late 19th century and the first feminist movement as well. So you can draw interesting parallels between the, the kind of growth of the cinema and the growth of the women's movement. One of the really exciting things about contemporary cinema, and I'd include in this British cinema, is that we're beginning to see a flourishing of female writing and directorial talent, people like Lynn Ramsey, Andrea Arnold, Joanna Hogg, um, people who've been going for longer, like Sally Potter as well. And I think that's a really exciting prospect, you know, to have a, a significant cohort of female auteurs making their mark on British cinema and also global cinema as well. What hasn't changed throughout the decades? What issues do you find addressed in British women's cinema from early 20th century films that could easily be part of a 21st century storyline? I suppose there are certain continuities in female experience that although lots of things have changed hugely, the conflict between love and duty, which you can see in a film like Brief Encounter, um, and it's a kind of staple of the woman's film, I think is still... It probably appears in a, in a different form nowadays, but I think that kind of conflict is still there. The problems of combining motherhood and family life with some kind of independent existence, it's dealt with in different ways in previous films, but what's interesting is that that's still an issue, it's an, and it's explored in certain films, but it's also very much present in women's professional lives within the industry. What about films by women? Do you find they infuse a particular female narrative? It's always a mistake to draw too simple an equation between the sex of the writer or director and the representation that is then offered, um, because I think it's, it's much more complicated than that. Having said that, it does seem that often in films made by women, you tend to get a kind of different version of uh, women being presented. And to give an example of that, um, a film I've worked on recently, the hugely successful, in fact, the most successful British or co-British financed film of all time, Mamma Mia, written, directed and produced by three women. And a lot of critics said at the time, the ones who weren't kind of being horrible about the film, they said they didn't think that you would get the kind of representation of motherhood, a mother who is permitted to be a sexual being who is allowed to have these youthful indiscretions and still be paired off with Pierce Brosnan at the end and who occupies equal screen time to her much younger daughter a lot of those things people made the connection between the way that the women were being presented and the fact that it was a film authored by women and I think Perhaps there is a kind of more intricate understanding of the kind of workings of femininity if you've been on the receiving end of, of that. It's, it's perhaps a little simple, but, but anecdotally that often seems to ring true. But then again you get directors like Catherine Bigelow who wins the Oscar for um, The Hurt Locker, which is an intensely kind of masculine film. There's barely 
a woman appearing in it and is very interested in more action orientated genres. So perhaps, you know, the rules don't apply at all. There's, you can't pin down women's cinema in the same way that you can't pin down men's cinema. And a lot of women filmmakers would prefer, you know, not to be bound by, by gender and ghettoised as a woman director and therefore you make certain kinds of films. But at the same time, I think once you get interested in, in film appreciation and film criticism, it's interesting to know that a film is directed or written by a woman and whether that might have an impact on the way that certain issues and, and images are, are presented. That was Professor Melanie Williams on British Women's Cinema. You can visit her blog on films by women at autostheory.blogspot.com. Last month, we introduced the Academic Inspiration series, a segment featured at the end of our podcasts which serve as the audio accompaniment to the series on the blog, where we ask notable social scientists which books inspired you into academia. Centennial professor at the LSE and gender theory specialist Mary Evans tells us which fictional character taught her the importance of solitude. I find it very difficult to say that there is one book that inspired me to begin work in feminist gender studies, but I can say that there is one book more than any other that impressed me with its account of a woman being by herself in her own space, in her own room. That book is not, as you might expect, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, which is world famous for its argument for the space and the income that women need in order to pursue a creative, intellectual, literary life. The book was written much earlier than this, and it's Louisa Olcott's Little Women. And the person in that book, who always was, and always is, I think, an important heroine for me, was Jo March. Now, Jo March is important not just because she has literary ambitions. She sits up in a cold attic, eating apples, scribbling away. But whilst that's important as a model of what women can do, what really, really impressed me about Jo March is that she was happy by herself. And I think that capacity for being happy in your own space, content with solitude, is a really important part of the ways in which we forget that life can be solitary as well as collective. I think it's particularly important for women because I think very often the pressures on women to be sociable, to be at other people's beck and call, is a very strong pressure. And Jo Marsh resisted all this. She sat up there, she didn't care about being cold, and she actually got on with reading, writing, being by herself. In more recent literary history, and history which is rather more academic than the two books that I've just mentioned, the work that I'd like to emphasise, the work that has been published much more recently, indeed in the last decade, is work by various women from different parts of the world giving a picture of what it's like to be female in the 20th to 21st century. The authors that I'd mentioned here are Beverly Skeggs, and I love her writing, about class, about the ways in which class is nuanced, is understood, is acted out, is both a way of people being with other people and also, very importantly, something which separates people. And in all that work, I think there's a sensitivity to the intersections between class, gender and, indeed, race. The other person that I would mention here is Gillian Rose's very short book, 
which is called Love's Work. And I think, again, this has some of the qualities which I've found in the imagination of Joe March. A capacity to think and be yourself, to be happy with where you have found yourself in the world. And I think that's a capacity which, for academics, for anybody who wants to write, for anybody who indeed wants to think about who they are in the world, Gillian Rose speaks back to that position of Joe March. She, in the late 20th century, brings to life yet again the ways in which thinking about who we are is a hugely important creative act, not just an act of some kind of selfish abandon, but an act which, in turn, can clarify the lives of others. Now, I would happily read Gillian Rose Bevskeg's In My Spare Time, but I also read a huge number of detective novels. And detective novels I love because they take me to a different kind of world from the world which I live. Like many academics, I lead a relatively conventional, ordered life. Nothing particularly exciting happens. But I do quite a lot of work. And so stepping into another world where exciting, but indeed evil, bad things do happen, sometimes on a really colossal scale, opens up all kinds of possibilities. But what happens in this world is that work actually makes us understand what is going on. So part of the reason that I like detective fiction so much and find it engaging is you see characters actually doing work, and doing work which makes connections between things. I think it's a characteristic of Western fiction in general. It doesn't very often write about work, and it's curious that the novel, which is supposed to be about imagining people's lives, leaves out what is, for most people, at least 50% of their waking lives. So the Scandinavians, most famously, of course, Stieg Larsson in the Millennium Trilogy, but other people as well, Joe Nesbo, for example, at least as famously Henning Mankell, all write about people making connections. And they're the connections which, of course, in the end catch the villain, but they're also the connections which suggest ways in which the villain is connected to ordinary life. As a sociologist, it's those connections and making those connections which I find so fascinating. That was Professor Mary Evans. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the LSE Review of Books podcast. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley and the music and sound came courtesy of users Bebito, Nemo Dea de Luz and Harry at freesound.org, Rice Ball of Doom on YouTube and also Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for his song Hand Trolley. Next month, as the world's top athletes fly into London, we take a closer look at the Olympic Games. What impact will the Games have on London in decades to come? Head of LSE Cities and Principal Design Advisor to the Olympic Games, Professor Richard Burdett, talks to us about the architectural and social benefits of the Olympics, and author Ian Sinclair tells us how London's grand project may actually leave a destructive legacy in its wake. Remember you can get in touch with us at lsereviewofbooks at lse.ac.uk or tweet us at lsereviewbooks. I'm Amy Wallet. Until next time. <laughs>